Hello and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. After last week's special edition WooCast, we are back with our regularly scheduled programming this week. First up, Cosmo and I are covering business and culture on 321 Go. Then we have a special edition of Two Minutes with Tom. This week, Tom is talking with Senator Ed Markey about Kavanaugh hearings, midterm elections, and why he takes Trump's attacks on the environment personally. First up, 321 Go. Let's talk about something important. Welcome to 321 Go on OA on Air, where each week we take a brief but purposeful look at three compelling topics in the world of public affairs, business, government, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, be careful with that selfie stick, it could kill you. That's right, there's a global epidemic of selfie related deaths from people doing risky stunts for that perfect Instagram post or text bomb. It's all very preventable, but some folks just can't resist. We'll discuss this trend of deadly selfies. And our own Kyan Isaacson talks with community relations and development expert Chris Tracy of O'Neill & Associates about the city of Boston's bold new plans for creating tens of thousands of new housing units. Finally, there's a new music venue planned for an area outside Fenway Park. If this sounds familiar, it's because there's almost always been a music venue outside Fenway Park, but they say this one is going to be way better. We'll explain. Joining me here on 321 Go is Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Hey, you know, Cayenne, I'm not the official anything of anything. You're the official voice of, I want to be the official something. You are the official voice of 321 Go. There's, there is no, I'm, I'm your host for 321 Go. The, I think more people would ascribe your voice to 321Go than mine. I, I guess so. But official is like, you know. It's, it's like, a thing. It's like the stamp yeah. on Wilson football. It's yeah. official. NFL. Uh, yeah, kind of a big deal. You know? You're kind of a big deal, right? <laughs> okay. Here we go. So a new if study, only that were the case. A new, a new study says more than 250 people worldwide have died taking selfies. And... You know, this jumps out at you, but it is incredibly, well, it's true, it's it's incredibly believable. I, I'm like, yeah, actually, that's all? Exactly. People do really stupid things thought taking it selfies. Been, thought it would have been higher. It's it, <laughs> The All India Institute of Medical Sciences, a group of public medical colleges based in New Delhi, they analyzed news reports of 259 selfie-related deaths, October 2011 to November 2017. It's going to be published in a four- uh, uh, published in the uh, July-August edition of the Journal of Family Medicine. Anyway, 259 deaths. Leading cause of selfie death is drowning. I absolutely believe that, too. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use another personal example. I and with a GoPro, probably. I told you about my trip across, uh, my godforsaken trip across Ohio a while yes. back, right? <laughs> well, my son and I went to Niagara Falls. An amazing, amazing vista. A tremendous thing to take in. And you know what? It is way too accessible to the average person. You could easily... Easily scale that fence and try to take a selfie and plummet to your death. Yeah, um, I'm it, sure. It's, it's frightening. We took a selfie it, 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 within safe distance of the falls, and it still felt somewhat risky. I'm really surprised. This is over six years, 259 deaths. I would have expected the number to be higher, number one. Um, I'm not at all surprised. However, 
I never thought that I would read the words, quote, the selfie deaths have become a major public health problem. It's an epidemic. They're calling it an epidemic. (laughs) Right? It (laughs) is. I mean, this is one of those things, like, I feel like I'm going to look back someday and be like, that was our generation. And it's over and over. (laughs) Hikers, uh, climbers, people on mountains. People waterfalls. Yeah. Remember the planing trend? Planking. Planking. Planking? Mm Mm-hmm. Remember the planking trend? I do. That was also very dangerous because people started to do, to do planking. Teetering. Teetering <laughs> in very dangerous places. Yes. Fortunately for me, I cannot execute an appropriate plank. You or, can't plank? I can't plank. Okay. Well, no, not without a piece of plank. All right. No, no plank challenge here. Anyway, uh, it is absolutely a public health threat. It is an epidemic worldwide. And like I said in the opening... People just can't resist. They're like, no. oh, this is such a great photo. I can't wait to post this on Instagram if I survive. <laughs> well, see, the other problem is that you're saying, oh, this is such a great photo. It's such a great backdrop for a photo. The problem comes when you're trying to make your face look good in the selfie photo, which is not always easy. So you try to get weird angles and you do all sorts of weird things. You have to do a lot of takes and you have totally disregarded the world around you whilst trying to make yourself look good against this pretty backdrop. Agreed. It's very dangerous. Meanwhile, the researchers, they're taking it, they're taking it hard. Uh, more than 85% of these victims were, were between the ages of 10 and 30. And one of the researchers says, speaking of this tragic group of selfie uh, fatalities, they form the future of a nation. They haven't even realized what their goals are. They aren't even sure what they want to do. They're just beginners in their lives. Isn't it generally the role of the researcher to present the data in a, in a dispassionate uh, yeah, but I think it's really hard not to have an opinion about this. I, I mean, so. we're laughing because it's just kind of ridiculous, but it's quite sad. I mean, this is this is terrible. He's and, lamenting and, the loss to humanity and of this selfie constituency. So, people, be careful when taking your selfies. Absolutely. Take Absolutely. caution. All right, there you go. The selfie epidemic. I'm here with Chris Tracy. Chris is the Senior Director of Community Relations here at O'Neill & Associates. And in his role, Chris works with our clients who have business in front of the city of Boston, helping them navigate the planning and development process. Would you say that's an accurate description, That is. That is accurate. Thank you for having me, Cayenne. Thrilled to be here. Um, So there's been a lot happening around housing. And there's been conversations for quite some time. But very recently, Mayor Walsh has now increased his housing plan goals from 53,000 to 69,000 new units of housing to be created by 2030. What impacts do you expect this to have on the development world in and around the city? That's right, Cayenne. So obviously some really exciting news um, with an ambitious new goal of creating new housing. And the city was on track to not only meet the 53,000 new units, but eclipse that number. So with the mayor increasing the number to 69 thousand new units. Uh, obviously, the development world is exciting and looking for potential opportunities across across the city of Boston to meet that need. So what are some of the potential difficulties that you think the city could encounter with goals this ambitious? So obviously, when, when you see the city go out to some of these communities, especially to the communities that are newer to the growth, and like we've said before in previous podcasts, the difference between this bu- building boom and previous building booms is that the development world is now touching different parts of the city where it never touched before, from East Boston to Jamaica Plain, 
you're seeing tremendous growth. So as the city and developers go into these communities newer to the process, they're encountering uh, some difficulties with neighborhood groups and civic associations sort of uh, getting their buy-in. Obviously, the tr the concerns of traffic and transportation are always pertinent. Um, you know, the, the city has become pretty difficult to navigate for a lot of folks, so obviously that's going to be an issue that developers have to have to battle through as they go through the process. And affordable housing is obviously uh, a critical piece to all this, where you, we hope to create as much housing as possible to uh, keep as many existing residents, residents as possible and also create new housing at income levels that folks can, uh, can achieve. So you've been, since coming to O'Neill & Associates, you've been involved with a lot of these different projects, as you know, you've touched upon. But it really is a transformative time in the city. How has, how have you seen your work change as sort of all of this keeps going? Uh, I think w what I spoke to as far as the new neighborhoods being touched, um, again, what we do is we, we go out to a community, um, engage them on what the proposed plans are, hear their feedback, obviously try to incorporate changes whenever possible to find a proposal that fits the developer and the client's needs as well as fits the community's needs um, as best as we can. We've done large projects in West Roxbury, Jamaica Plain, Charlestown. We've done smaller projects uh, in Beacon Hill and Back Bay. In all these communities we're working in, we're, we're trying to find um, a palatable mix of uh, smart development and something that the community can get on board with. So for anyone that might be wondering, and for a nice plug for you and the, the work that you do here, how, how is O'Neill & Associates or you of assistance to clients who are looking to get involved in this sort of new and, and continued housing boom? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we think we're in a great position to obviously guide uh, clients through that arduous process of getting your project approved. I myself worked in City Hall for about 10 years, and we have capabilities here uh, to help people, to help clients through what can be a really challenging permitting process, both in the community and in the city. And obviously, we've we've achieved some great success, and we hope to keep that going in the future. Well, great, Chris. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Cayenne. All right, up on deck is a. New music venue for the city of Boston, at least that's the plan by the Boston Red Sox and music industry giant Live Nation. They've got plans to build a performing arts center alongside Fenway Park that would actually be the city's largest indoor venue of its kind. It'd be called Fenway Theater, seating 5,000 people um, behind Lansdowne and Ipswich streets. Um, that's a good-sized venue, Cayenne. The, the first thing I think of is, well, wait a second, there's always been a venue, more or less, right outside Fenway Park, whether more recently the House of Blues. Um, I was a huge fan of Avalon, which preceded the House of Blues. I, th I thought it was a great place to see a show. And then many years ago, um, you know, Aerosmith experimented. They had a place called Mamakin, where it was designed to encourage local bands. And, uh, and then going back many years, that neighborhood has always had some venue or the other. But this is kind of a game changer because of the seating. Mm -hmm. Right, the closest thing the to size. it, closest thing to it is the Box Center, which you don't see a lot of live music in. Um, maybe more and more now, but it's I don't traditionally consider that a venue. The Wang, for, the Wang, the Box yeah. Center for no, I think country. of that as like the Nutcracker. <clears throat> the now the Orpheum, I've seen a lot of great shows there. I mean, the the place is 
you know, it's it's fro- it's frozen in time to say the least. Is that the one in like near Boston Common? Absolutely. On Tremont Center. Absolutely. The Orpheum is is a, is a great venue. And then there's the Opera House. Historic. There's the Opera House. Um, and then out, you know, the outdoor music shed, the uh, the Blue Hoose Pavilion. So there's a lot of venues. Uh, so there's two things here. Number one is just how do you program it exactly? So. And, and they, they arrive at that seating because they know there's a type of show, I think, that they're going to put in there. Or, or you know, um, And then number two is, I'll tell you, that Fenway neighborhood, there's, some, a, lot. there's a lot. Something new in there every year. Um, and, and not that many years ago, less than 20 or around 20 years ago, the neighborhood was very, very different. And the people living in the Fenway even then were concerned and not happy with the Red Sox as a neighbor. Well, now the Red Sox kind of run the whole neighborhood. A little bit. So, um, and there are more residents than there used to be. Absolutely. It's more of a residential area than it was in which years it, past it, it as is. the nightlife increased too. So it's interesting. I think that's a little bit of saving grace for it because they've created sort of a new category of resident, so to speak. Um, but as uh, uh, this activist says in the... Uh, I think from the yeah, from the Fenway Civic Association, Tim Horn says in the story um, in the Boston Globe, it's a matter of balance. They want to make sure that this doesn't further tip the balance uh, in a way that harms the neighborhood. What do you think? Well, they got to sell it to the neighborhood, and we know how we are in Boston. A little nimbyism here from time to time. So it'll be interesting to see how they kind of approach that. I do think it's great for the city. Um, you know, as far as venues go. You've got the smaller venues that you talked about, and then you've got the Blue Hills Pavilion and the Seaport, which is a great venue, but only really usable a couple, couple months, maybe half the year. I don't know, depending on how the weather is. Might get five, is. six months out of that. Um, yeah. and, then, and then there's TD Garden. But what happens for all the other bands that want to come, and they're well, not then, big enough and, for and, a TD and, Garden, and, and, but and they're... And then there's, then there's Fenway Park, which started out, what, with one concert how many yeah. years ago? And now it's a whole series. You've got Lots Gillette for the mega shows. Um, and, and quite honestly, a lot of people that it's fun to go to a concert at Fenway because it's a, it's Fenway, but it's not actually always the best venue for a concert. Oh, I agree. So not, not designed in that way at all. Yeah, and that's not what it was intended for, which it makes sense. But um, I think it's exciting. We'll see if the neighborhood goes for it and what the what the steps are. But it seems like all of the right ducks are in a row for this to happen and fill. Uh, I guess they see a need. Yeah, you know, uh, the Civic Association offers a compromise. We, you know, we, they say, we, well, we'd hope that the, that the Red Sox consider fewer outdoor shows as a concession to the neighborhood. And, and, and that's a pretty good and easy-sounding win for the Red Sox with the community, except you're talking about two completely different categories, a 5,000-seat venue versus a 30,000-seat venue, or for a concert, probably 20 or 25. The people who are playing concerts at Fenway would not be appropriate to play a concert in a 5,000-person venue. Probably not, or, or at least not as a – they might do a tour of venues like that, not as a replacement. You're not doing a summer show indoors that you would have done out at Fenway. You're no. just not. No, and I mean, and if you if you were, you're going to TD Garden because that's the level that you're at, and that's the number of people that want to come see you. Yeah. But, hey – more music for the city? Hey, I have no a, problems with that. I'm a fan of live music. I know you are, too. I think it's terrific. Um, but uh, certainly something to watch to see how the community reacts and how successful it is. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321GO. Cayenne, hey, that was, uh, was a good conversation. Always fun. Good conversation with the official voice 
of OA on air. That's me. And the official voice <laughs> of nothing. Uh, 321 Go is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's all for 321 Go. Up next, I step aside and Senator Ed Markey steps in. Senator Markey came by our studio this week to catch up with our CEO, Tom O'Neill, for a special edition of Two Minutes with Tom. Senator Ed Markey, OA on air. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Tom. Yeah, thank you. Uh, in admission, Ed Markey and I go back uh, considerably. We, we were in college together. We were in the state legislature together. We were in the Army Reserve together. We've known each other for a good long time. And my respect, my respect for now Senator Ed Markey has never, ever dwindled. It's always been the same since the day we got elected to the state legislature. It's wonderful to have you here. Uh, I, a couple of things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the Supreme Court and the Kavanaugh hearings underway, the effect of the new FBI investigation, and what you think the, the outcome is going to be. I want to talk about the midterm elections. But uh, first of all, how are you? And tell me, could it be any more time-fold with activities in Washington and around this country? Uh, we really are in crazy town down in Washington right now. This uh, Brett Kavanaugh nomination has unearthed uh, an entire world of women who want to tell their stories about how they were sexually assaulted, but simultaneously it's also unearthed uh, on the far right in our country uh, a group of people who clearly are unhappy with uh, what they believe is the direction our country is going in, more protections for women, for minorities, for gays. And so it is, it, it's an almost unprecedented time. Um, and ultimately what is about to unfold is in this first week of an FBI investigation, I think we're going to learn more and more and more about Brett Kavanaugh because uh, it's pretty obvious that Dr. Blasey Ford was highly credible. I believe her in what she is alleging. I think most of America who heard her story believe her. But notwithstanding that, the Republicans are still committed to ramming her through after a very brief one-week FBI investigation. Our job as Democrats will be to ensure that we do not cast the vote until every single piece of evidence is gathered and made public. Uh, otherwise, he is going to be an illegitimate uh, member of the Supreme Court, and that will not be good for our country in the long run. You, you, you talked earlier, before we, we went on air, you talked earlier about how the proceedings in the, in the Kavanaugh hearing have manifested itself amongst American women and it wasn't just the two women on that elevator talking to Senator Flake. It's what's going on in the, in the other offices of other members of Congress. And you, you experienced it. So I want you to talk about that because it's, it's, it's really telling, I think. Yeah, what, when the hearing was taking place on Thursday, when Dr. Blasey Ford was testifying, 
we had scores of women who had been sexually assaulted who live in Massachusetts calling my Senate office here in Boston and down in Washington to tell their stories about what happened to them. So the courage of Dr. Blasey Ford. Was that organized or was that spontaneous? I don't know, but I do know that the stories they were telling uh, were quite powerful. In fact, when I came back here uh, on Friday uh, at National Airport, an African-American woman who works for American Airlines just walked over to me to tell me the story of being sexually assaulted when she was eight years old by her uncle. Uh, and she just felt that she had to tell someone who would have a vote on Brett Kavanaugh. And that was not orchestrated, you know, and it was a yeah. very powerful story of someone who was taken advantage of as a young girl. And so I think a lot of what did happen was quite genuine and spontaneous. Uh, and, um, uh, and I think we're going to see a lot more of it in this next couple of weeks. Senator, take me through the end of the week, the FBI report or whatever it is they give to the U.S. Senate, that committee on, on the judiciary. What if it's just more of the same he said, she said? The Republicans, do they jam it through? Do they try to jam it through? And what's the role of the Democratic members of the U.S. Senate at that point? Uh, I think their inclination is to jam it through. I think what is going to complicate it is that as each day goes by, we are going to learn more about Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh at Yale, Brett Kavanaugh in high school, Brett Kavanaugh as a young legal associate in the law firm. So we're, we're starting from a very small base of information, which I think is now going to explode. And we're finding more people who uh, knew him in these different places in his life, who are going, who are coming forward and actually corroborating the essence of what uh, Dr. Blasey Ford talked about in terms of the alcohol-soaked uh, uh, culture, uh, and then aggressive behavior uh, that what that occurred as a result. So, um, so then our job as Democrats will be to insist on more time for the FBI uh, to complete the investigation. We don't have to vote in the first week of October. We can vote on the second week of October. And by the way, Mitch McConnell is intending on keeping us in session for the entire month of October. We can vote in the third week of October, the fourth week of October. Mm -hmm. There is no deadline on the truth. Uh, the Republicans are trying to create a deadline for voting on a Supreme Court yes. nominee. Yeah. And, uh, and we're going to insist on that and use every procedural obstacle that we can create. But at the same time, they can with just 51 votes, truncate the procedural process and move right to the substantive vote. But I think they'll be making a big mistake for themselves electorally in 2018. So these hearings have really kind of reawakened the giant. In this case, a wick has been, has been ignited for women everywhere to kind of come out, show their activism like they've never shown it before, and the effect of which on the midterms is going to be, what do you think? Um... I think that women are really paying attention, and there's an activism that began with the Women's March here on Boston Common on the National Mall. 180,000 women showed up on the um, 
on, on Boston Common. Uh, but that was across the entire country as well. So Trump has ignited, as you're saying, uh, a response. Um, and minorities are going to turn out in much higher numbers. Women are going to turn out in much higher numbers. And I think in my own personal life, when I met my wife 33 years ago, uh, she was the chief of behavioral medicine at the National Institutes of Health. And one of her subspecialties was teenage young women uh, and how ignored that whole segment had been in terms of bulimia, anorexia, depression, vulnerability, guilt that they were carrying for their entire life. And President Clinton in the 1990s named my wife as the first deputy assistant secretary for women's health in American history. Think about that. We're in the 1990s and we're finally getting a deputy assistant secretary at the uh, Department of Health and, health and Human Services for women's health. So a lot of people are surprised that this is happening. Oh, why didn't they come forward earlier? Well, we're just making up for a lot of lost time that my wife has been explaining to me has been there the whole time, but just ignored by the system. So it looks to be, take me through the midterms. You see the House, I think, turning in, in pretty significant numbers. How about the Senate? And, and talk about the House, if you will. Uh, yeah, th there are seats in Iowa that we think we're going to win. There are seats in Kansas that we think we're going to win. Uh, we might not have a clean sweep in New Jersey, but we're going to come pretty close. That's how big the blue wave is. It's turning into a blue tsunami in many of these states. Uh, so for the House of Representatives, it looks very good. But the same thing is true over in the Senate. Um, Bob Corker vacated his seat in Tennessee. Uh, our candidate, Phil Bredesen, is a former two-term, very popular Democratic governor. Uh, and the most recent polling has him ahead by five points uh, in Tennessee over Marsha Blackburn. Same thing is true for John McCain's seat in Arizona. Uh, we have an incredible um, candidate in Nevada, Jackie Rosen, who is um, a congresswoman right now. Uh, and, uh, and she's ahead in the polling as well. So we have a chance of picking up those seats. And simultaneously, the seats that we thought we're going to be vulnerable, are one by one being taken off the table because their candidate is not, in fact, campaigning in a way that is really jeopardizing most of the Senate uh, incumbents, which we have, which are inside of Trump states. And there are 10 of them who are running this year. So we're doing very well there. If we can hold on to those incumbents, and they're each doing very well, and we can pick up three seats, then the Democrats will control the United States Senate with 52 or 51 seats uh, in November of 2018. That's not seeing the glass half full. That's really seeing the glass half full, isn't it? <laughs> you know, we, we, you and I have been around looking at wave elections, for better or worse. We, we first got elected on a wave election, you and I. Exactly. <laughs> and so we, we know that it works. It works in a way where candidates become beneficiaries of forces that are larger than themselves. That's right. And there are many Democrats in states all across the country who I think are going to be taking an oath of office uh, in January of 2019 because of a wave that's sweeping them in that uh, is the opposite of the wave that's 
that absolutely swept out Democrats in 2010. We went from 258 down to 188 in one election day in 2010. You, you've worked on a lot of issues over the years. <clears throat> the environment is, is, is one of the things that come to my mind. First, when I think about Ed Markey and his role in the U.S. House or Senate, net neutrality and technology, and what you've done on, on some of those committees that have been so important. So let me, let me ask you, I mean, it's very difficult for someone like myself to stay up with all the changes going on under the Trump administration because some of them are just unbelievably crazy when, 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 when you get it. I mean, if you read every newspaper in America, you couldn't keep up with the changes that are going on, I think, in a negative sense. Of everything you've worked on, what a con- concerns you the most? And what about the Trump administration, aside of your own issues, concerns you the most? Uh, it's hard. You know, when I was elected to the Senate, they decided to re number all 100 senators in terms of how many laws are on the books because of that senator. So they gave me credit for my House career. So I'm number eight with 520 laws that are on the books. Lauren Hatch is like 800. Barbara Mikulski was 700. So I'm number eight. So for better or worse, he's, I think, particularly targeted me. So my 2007 law on fuel economy standards is what President Obama used to raise the goal to 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025. They're taking that off the books. Net neutrality, taking that off the books. Privacy online, guaranteed that they just can't sell your information to a third party. That's me as well. So I can go down the list, but I'm taking it quite personal (laughs) because these were the kind of changes that had to be added to the law to animate technology with human values. We're from Massachusetts. We're capitalists. We have the highest per capita income. We believe in wealth generation here in the state of Massachusetts. But we're capitalists with a conscience. You just can't have information technology and no privacy. You can't have vehicles that are unnecessarily inefficient in how they burn fossil fuels, making the world more dangerous because of climate change. You have to add and animate each technology with human values. That's what I've tried to do over the course of my career. And uh, for better or worse, and it's all for the worse, Trump has just handed the keys to the private sector to just fulfill their wildest imaginations that they don't have to meet any standard for public interest. And uh, uh, and I enjoy the battle, Tommy, to be honest with you. Uh, I have never been this animated in my whole life. I get up every morning with every one of his tweets, and I'm ready to fight <laughs> because these are important laws. That's good to hear. So you're up, <clears throat> you're up yourself in 2020. You're running for re-election? Yes, I am running for re-election, absolutely. Yeah, I, this, this, is, this is an important time uh, for... Uh, our uh, our country, and we need to ensure that uh, people who know what they're doing and are passionate uh, are there on the front lines every single day to shut down Donald Trump and his agenda. My friend, Senator Ed Maki, it's great to have you here. Thank and, you, Tom. And oh, by the way, we need you. Thank you, my friend.
Special thanks to Senator Markey for joining us this week. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Thanks for listening. Now go subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, our website, O'Neillandassos.com, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Talk to you next week.